I heard a story one time about a young boy and his mother, and they were getting ready for bed. They were in the bed, and it came time to do the normal bedtime prayer. Many of you guys, did you do that with your kids? You know, you had, had a bedtime prayer, and it was something, sometimes the kid said the same prayer every night, right? So that's what this kid, this boy was doing. So they both bowed their heads, they closed their eyes, and the boy said, the itsy-bitsy spider went up the water spout. <laughs> Down came the rain and washed the spider out. Up came the sun and dried up all the rain, and the itsy-bitsy spider went up the spout again. And the mother looked at him and was like, Wait, what are you doing? <laughs> this is supposed to be prayer time. And the boy said, well, I figured God gets bored of hearing the same old thing every night, so I thought I'd give him something different today. <laughs> you know, we sometimes, and even if we don't want to admit it, as Christians, we often struggle with prayer. And one of the things we struggle with is how do we pray? And we often, and I find myself meeting Christians that have doubts about their ability to pray well. You know, it could be because of being in church and hearing people pray in church. But you frequently see this when I, I've frequently seen it, when I've asked people to pray out loud. Because often, if somebody turns me down, uh, they'll say, you know, I just, I'm not that good at praying. And, you know, I can't, I don't know really what to say. I think you'd probably pass it on to somebody else who's better at praying than I am. That's usually the excuse I hear, I hear when somebody doesn't want to pray in public. And I think it's because we have this idea in our head of a standard of what prayer should be. And if we don't hit that standard, then we have doubts about our ability to do it. So my question for you today is, do you want to learn how to pray better? Because if you do, thankfully God doesn't leave us to guess. There's multiple places in Scripture and in the New Testament where God teaches us how to pray better. And one of those places is Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 15. Matthew 6, 7 through 15 is in the middle of a major part and a famous part in the book of Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount. And the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is what Jesus says in Matthew 5, that unless your righteousness is greater than the Pharisees, you can't enter heaven. And so for the rest of the sermon, starting in Matthew 5, Jesus illustrates for us what it looks like to have a righteousness that's greater than a Pharisee. And so you get to Matthew 5, Matthew 6, verse 1, and he says, if you want to have a true righteousness, then you have to do your good works for God's approval and not people's applause. That's what we talked about last week and the last couple of weeks. It's not just something that's externally following rules and externally being a good Christian. It has to be something of the heart. And everything has to be for the glory of God and God's approval instead of people's applause. From there, in verses 2 through 18, Jesus then gives us three examples of Areas and what it looks like to do those things for God's approval and not people's applause. Those three examples were uh, giving, praying, and fasting. In the smack middle of this Matthew 6, 1 through 18, Jesus takes a little detour. He talks about prayer in verses 5 and 6, and it's almost like this brings in him a desire to give a few more points on what it looks like to pray. Because Jesus isn't just happy with us praying. He wants us to pray correctly. And so he says, hey, here's some more points on how we need to make sure that we as believers are praying correctly to God. And so you have this section that's verse 7 through 15, right smack in the middle 
of this other otherwise section that's about something else. And so in this passage, what you'll see is three prayer points. And my question again is, do you want to pray better? And listen to Jesus's three prayer points. The first is in verse 7 and 8. That is, don't pray meaninglessly or mechanically. Don't pray meaninglessly or mechanically or meaninglessly. Verse 7 and 8. And when you are praying, do not use thoughtless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. So in verse 7, Jesus says, okay, I've got another prayer point for you. That is, don't pray with thoughtless repetition. The word thoughtless repetition is one word in the Greek, and it's actually probably a word that Jesus made up. Because it's not found anywhere else, not just in the Bible, but in all secular literature. That word's not found anywhere else. So Jesus probably made it up for this sermon. And it literally means to say the sound bata, B-A-T-T-A, over and over again. To say bata. So it probably means to stutter, or in light of what's written here, to, to uh, say a bunch of stuff that's, that's oratorical and flowery and big and you know, wordy. Or it could mean simply to say some kind of syllable or some kind of sound over and over again like a mantra. <clears throat> William Tyndall, who was the first person to translate the Bible into English, translated that word as babble. And that's a pretty good equivalence. Don't babble when you pray. Now Jesus' problem in verse 7 is not the repetition part per se. Because Jesus himself prayed the same prayer multiple times in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in fact, it seems like, like in the Lord's Prayer down below, that there is an element where it's okay to pray with repetition. The emphasis is not on the repetitiveness part, it's on the thoughtless part, or the meaningless part. His problem is when we get into prayers, and when our prayers are coming out of our mouths, but they're not connected to our head or our heart. You see, the Greeks back then, they had a... Um, an unbiblical view of, God, of their gods and prayer. In their idea, prayer was not something that was personal. It wasn't a conversation. It was more like a price that you paid. So if you said the, uh, the right words, and if you said enough words, then they assumed that the gods would hear you and answer you. So the gods were more like vending machines. If you put enough of your prayer coins in and you press the right numbers on the prayer on the prayer pad, then God's going to dispense the thing that you're asking for. And Jesus is saying this philosophy behind the meaningless reputation is not something that we as Christians should have when we pray because we aren't praying to a vending machine God. We're praying to a person, our Father, who loves us and wants to care for us. And so he says actually in verse 7 and 8 that there's two reasons why this is to have a thoughtless or meaningless prayer is so bad. And before we get to those, it's, it's easy for us to forget, though, that this happens a lot today. You know, if you expand out, it might be somebody who has rosary beads that feels like just rubbing their hand across the bead is enough to be a prayer. They don't have to think anything. They just have to move the beads through their hand. Or it could be a prayer wheel. Have you all ever heard of a prayer wheel before? These are these wheels that are set up, and all you got to do is spin the wheel, and the prayer that's written on the wheel gets prayed every time the wheel spins around. Or a prayer flag. 
or if people have prayer flags where there's a prayer written on a flag and as the wind blows the flag, that prayer is said for the person. But we can bring it down home a little bit more. It can be like that nighttime prayer that the boy was saying, where we say the same prayer over and over again, the same type of things over and over again in our prayers, that really you've gotten to where you just say them and you don't really think about them. They're mechanical and they're meaningless. It could be like my little league softball team where we said the Lord's Prayer before games, I guess just because. It was mechanical and meaningless, though. So it's not just something that other religions struggle with. And when he says, don't be like pagans, it's not something that just they struggle with. It's something that we as Christians have to fight. We have to make sure our prayers don't turn into something that's either meaningless or mechanical. And he, then he tells us why in verses 7 and 8. Why is this so horrible? And it's because a thoughtless, meaningless, mechanical prayer demonstrates not just a bad view of God, but a flat-out disrespectful view of God. That a mechanical and meaningless prayer is almost disrespecting God. He says in verse um, 7, they pray for, they think that they will be heard because of their many words. One of the assumptions that these prayers make is that the more you say the prayer, it's almost like God can't hear you unless you say it a lot. The Gentiles, and we see this in the Old Testament too, had a view of God as almost being stagnant, inactive. And you had to almost rouse him to do something. So you see that, for example, if you know the story of Elijah with the Baal prophets. But he's, Elijah's sitting there, one of the, the funniest stories, in my opinion, in the Bible, because Elijah's there making fun of these Baal prophets because the Baal prophets are trying to get Baal to send down fire, and he's not doing it because he's not real. And Elijah basically tells him, why don't you pray a little harder? Why don't you pray a little louder? Maybe Baal's on the toilet, or maybe he's gone on vacation, and you need to bring him back. That, but that's their view of the gods. That's almost like they're inactive, and they don't hear unless you say it a lot. Or he's like, God's like a couch potato, sitting up in heaven with a giant belly and some chips on his stomach, and he doesn't really want to get up to answer anything. And unless you knock enough times and annoy him enough, then he'll get up and brush the chips off and answer you. That was their view of the gods. And he says these meaningless mechanical prayers assume that God is like that. That almost you have that nearly by saying enough words and the right words, it doesn't matter if they're sincere. You're just rousing God to action for what you're requesting. But that's a horrible view of God, right? That, that's, that's a terrible idea to have. Because the reality is the Bible says that God is not inactive. He's always active. He can't be asleep because he's always awake. He can't be roused to action because God is always acting. He always is watching you. He always is listening to you. He's always moving there for you. You don't have to get him to do something because he's always doing something. And he's personal. And he loves you as your father. And so it's a... a the, don't pray like a pagan. It's a disrespectful view of God to think that merely by the number of words you use or by the number of times you say a prayer that that's enough for it to be appropriate. He says the other assumption it could make is it's almost like you think you have to tell God and tell God a lot what your problem is because he doesn't know. Um, like he has short-term memory or 
He just doesn't listen very well, so you have to tell him a lot what your problems are. He says in verse 8, so do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask of him. He says these prayers, it's this assumes almost like that God doesn't know what's going on. Like, we pray to God, God, I'm hurting today, and God goes, I can't believe it. I didn't know you were hurting today. Man, that's a new one for me. I could not tell past the facade on your face that you were hurting today. Man, I'm so glad that you told me that prayer. Is that what God does? No. He says God knows what you need even before you ask him in prayer. Well, if God knows what you need even before you ask him in prayer, why do you even pray? Well, you don't pray to let God know something. You pray, one, to demonstrate to God that you know you need him. God already knows that you need him. You don't, he don't have to convince him. He knows that you need him. But it's good for us to show God that we know we need him. And that's one of the reasons we pray. The second reason we pray is because that's how you commune or connect and have a relationship with God. After the fall happened, we, we, don't, we don't have a relationship with God. We don't see God. And prayer is one of the ways that in prayer you're having a communication, a communion, a connection with God. Through prayer. And it's one of the ways he's given us to do that. The third thing he's given us is he has said in scripture that he will only give things and answer things if we ask him for it. For example, the interesting passage in James where he says, um, You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. He says you don't have because you don't ask. So God does answer prayer. He might answer yes. He might answer no. There's something better for you. He might answer wait. You can have it but later. But he hears you and he answers every time. So we don't serve a, a vending machine God whom if we just put enough prayer points in, he dispenses what we want. We serve a God who loves us, who knows what you need, who sees you, and is longing to have fellowship with you in prayer. 1918, uh, the, the Kendall Clark Company had a problem. They had this cotton called cellucotton that they used in World War I and gas masks and other stuff. And after World War I ended, they had a ton of it and nothing to do with it. And so they decided to sell the cellucotton as some kind of fancy makeup remover cloth that was disposable. And so they got a bunch of celebrities, and they had a big advertisement that began to push this disposable makeup remover cloth, and the sales began to rise. But then they began to hear something from the women who were buying it, and that they were saying their husbands were stealing their disposable cloths to use as handkerchiefs. And they wanted to know, if, and the men wanted to know if they could sell it also as disposable handkerchiefs. Well, some of the people at the Clark, uh, Kimball Clark Company, they didn't want that. They wanted to keep it as a makeup remover. They didn't want to sell it as a handkerchief. Finally, after six years of battle between what they were going to do with this cotton supply, they went to Peoria, India, Indiana, and they did a little test. They gave people the option of either receiving a free makeup remover tissue coupon or a free handkerchief coupon. And by far, the vast number of people took advantage of the free disposable handkerchiefs. And you had then the birth of Kleenex and tissues. It's amazing, though, 
that it took the Kendall Clark Company six years and multiple different people talking to them to finally get them to understand what the public really needed from them. We don't serve a God like that. We don't serve a God that is confused about what you need, and we got to tell him constantly, and six years later, he finally gets it. That's not the God we serve. We see a serve a God who sees us, who knows us, who loves us. He even knows what you need that you don't even know you need. And so don't pray like a pagan. Don't pray meaninglessly or thoughtlessly or mechanically. Because we don't serve a God that looks like the type of God that would answer those prayers. We serve a God who's personal and a God whom we can call our Father. So don't pray like a pagan. First, don't pray mechanically and meaninglessly. Secondly, pray with sincerity and simplicity. It says in verse 9 through 13, Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So 9 through 13 is one of the most popular, famous sections in Matthew. <coughs> called the Lord's Prayer. If verse 7 and 8 was describing by Jesus what not to do, verses 9 through 13 is the description of what to do. It's the model prayer. It's the model of what we should do. And we're not going to look at it too in-depth today, because I'm actually, it's such an important prayer, we're going to set it aside, and I'm going to look back, and we're going to look at it in-depth next week. But what I want to show you today in 9 through 13 is this. Two qualities about this prayer really stand out, especially when you compare it to verses 7 and 8. And it's really the purpose of why Jesus is including it here. And that is first, that the prayer is simple. It's simple. I mean, it's short, doesn't have long sentences, not too many huge theological words in there. It's got simple language. A, ch a child can memorize it. A child can say it. Children do memorize it and say it for that reason. It's a simple prayer. And it's not just simple, it's a sincere prayer. In contrast to this mechanical idea of God being a vending machine, he calls out to God as being our Father, who who wants to lead us out of temptation, who sees our needs and forgives our debts and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's a prayer that's not just simple, it's a prayer that's sincere compared to these other prayers. And I think that's what we often forget when it comes to praying and why we struggle with doubts and thinking we can't pray. Because we so often think that good prayers are wordy and complex. When Jesus says good prayers are just simple and sincere. I mean, if think about it, and I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because we get somebody and somebody stands up in church and it seems like words are just flowing from their lips. And they're throwing in big theological translations. They might quote a scripture or two or something. And we're sitting back going, wow, man, I can never pray. If, that, if that's prayer, I can't do that. I don't know all those big, big words. I don't know all that scripture. When I try to pray, I, I pray I stumble over stuff. I can't pray because I can't pray like that. But 
Jesus is trying to say it's not the complexity of the prayer or the length of the prayer that matters. It's the simplicity and the sincerity. The model prayer in the Bible. In other words, the perfect prayer that Jesus gives is 9 through 13. You cannot find a prayer that's more simple and more sincere than verses 9 through 13. And if your prayer is as simple and sincere as Jesus' prayer here, you're not just doing good, you're doing great. You're doing great as somebody who prays. Now, we do get better when we pray based on how much we pray. Whether we pray at home and by ourselves or we pray in public, practice makes us better. And part of the reason why we struggle is because we haven't practiced praying enough. But that doesn't mean that our prayers can't be simple and sincere. It just means we, they can be simple and sincere as we also practice with them. Now, we have two little girls. They're growing up. They're learning to talk. And children do not say full, complex sentences, do they? But you know exactly what they need. You know, when my girls, when they're hungry, they don't go, Oh, Father. <laughs> Blessed Father, I am so famished with my, my inside. Can you please go into the refrigerator over there and reach up in there to grab the pomino cheese sandwiches? No. <laughs> and the Millie goes, Dad, Dad. Baba. But I know what she wants. They don't go, oh, Father, I've fallen and torn my tibia, and I feel like my life is ending, and I, I got, it's not really blood everywhere, but I feel like just blood and arteries are pouring out everywhere, and I have so much need for you to come and, and give me a huge hug, Father. No, they, they run and they cry, right? And they just say, Dad, Dad, and they run to me. But the thing is, when I hear Millie say the word dad, dad, that means more to me than a hundred words from anybody else. Because she's my child. And I know exactly what she's saying just by uttering those two syllables. And that's how God is. You don't have to come to God with this large, flowery, complex sentences. If you can utter up a thought that's simple and sincere, you've got yourself a great prayer. Because in Christ, he's your father, and he loves you. Now, with a little practice, you might move on from dad, dad, and baba in prayers. But this, the simplicity and sincerity doesn't change. It's just the amount of content you put in it. So Jesus says, pray with sincerity and simplicity. If you look at this thing, like I said, we'll do more in depth later, but it really only has three sections in it. The first, the first part is he addresses God as Father in heaven. The second part is that he asks that God's will and glory be shown. And then the third part is, is he asks that our needs be met. So after you address God as your Father, and after you talk to God about his glory and will being shown, then you're prepared to explain to God your needs. And it's just those three simple, sincere parts. That's all it is. And so if you can utter up those three parts in a prayer, that even if it's as short as those verses, guys, I'd put you on stage and say, you got a great prayer. Because this is the model prayer. And so Jesus has these prayer points for us. First, he says, don't pray meaninglessly and mechanically. Instead, pray simply and sincere, sincerely. 
And then you get this last point he puts in verses 14 and 15, uh, which we'll read about now. It says, For if you forgive other people for their offenses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive other people, then your Heavenly Father will not forgive your offenses. Pray only if you've forgiven others, is what Jesus says. Verse 14 is an expansion on verse 12. 14 and 15. And verse 12 in pushes in Jesus an idea that he needs to talk about it a little more. So he gives a little bit more verse 12 and explains it a little more in verses 14 and 15. And at first glance, it sounds like what he says is that if you're unwilling to forgive somebody, then God will take your salvation from you. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I'm saying that if you find yourself unwilling to forgive somebody, then you might be warned that you've never had salvation in the first place. Because to be saved means to understand what it means to be forgiven by God. Verse 12 is huge because in it he tells every single one of us listening here today that we should ask God to forgive us our debts. So every one of us has a need to ask God for forgiveness. Now we might not be terrible people. You know, we might not be bank robbers or capital murderers. But Jesus, as Jesus, as the whole point of really Matthew 5 through 7, as Jesus said in Matthew 5, it doesn't matter if you've not killed somebody, if you've been angry, if you've lusted, if you've envied, if you've put anything before God, if you've, if you've lied, any of those little sins is enough to say, hey, we're not perfect before God, and we're not right before God. All of us need to ask God to forgive us of something. Luckily, God made that way easy. Because as he says in verse 12, our sin is like a debt, a debt we couldn't pay. So God came to earth with Jesus, and he paid the debt for us. It's not that the debt went away. It's that God paid the debt so we didn't have to when he died on the cross for our sins. And so if anybody places their faith in Jesus, and if anybody just asks Jesus to forgive them, what happens is what the atonement Jesus did on the cross gets applied to you personally. And you don't have any sin debt anymore to pay. And Jesus reminds us then in 14 and 15 of the extent he went through to forgive us of all our sins. And it doesn't matter how many times we've sinned. It doesn't matter how big our sins were against Christ. Our sin increased grace about it all the more. If you simply ask God to forgive you, he does. Right there on the spot. And it's not a cheap forgiveness. It cost him his life. He did that so he could make it that easy for you. And what Jesus is saying in 14 and 15 is that if you're then unwilling to turn around and forgive somebody else, then maybe you don't fully understand what it means to be forgiven by God. One, you don't understand the gospel because the gospel is all about forgiveness, and we follow God who forgives. And so if we are people who are children of God, who should act like God, and God forgives, then we should forgive other people. And secondly, he says we don't understand the extent of our sin because when we approach Jesus in the cross, we realize how horrible we are as people. And when we realize how bad our sin is, if other people do us wrong, it doesn't feel as bad because we know how much we wrong God. So we fail to see the horribleness of our own sin. And third, we fail to see the, the importance of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. It doesn't seem like it's that big a deal to us, that God would die for us so he could forgive us. And we don't have to do anything to forgive other people. So Jesus is not saying that God will take your salvation away. He says somebody who struggles to forgive 
It may be that they've never been forgiven themselves by God. If only those people who forgive others truly understand and grasp God's forgiveness. Follow with me. And only those people who are truly grasped and forgiven by God can commune with God. Then only those people who are willing to forgive others can commune with God. And if the primary or one of the important purposes of prayer is to commune with God, then we can't do that unless we grasp God's forgiveness and shown we do that by forgiving other people. And this is not some light thing that Jesus talks about only once. We don't have time to tell the whole story, but he has the story of the king who went and he forgave one slave and of his debt. And then that servant went back and he punished another servant and the king got mad. He said, if I forgave you all this debt, why didn't you forgive your fellow servant of that little bitty debt they had? And then Jesus, even in chapter 5, says this. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled with your brother, and then come and present your offering. So this is not a subject that just comes up once in the Bible and goes away. This is a pretty big deal to Jesus. And Matthew 5 gives a good comic example of what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to stop our offering, go and be reconciled. Then we can pray and offer our gift. So Jesus says, don't pray like a pagan. He is emphasizing this point that our prayers should be different as Christians because our view of God is different from other people. We're not like hypocrites, as he said in 5 and 6, who just use prayer to boost ourselves and use God to boost ourselves. And we're not like pagans who view God as some machine or some computer that if we just input the right data, he'll output something to us. He says, we serve a God who loves us, who knows us, who sees us, who answers us, who's willing to forgive us. We serve a heavenly Father who's personal. And if we as Christians have that personal view of God that is so contrast to the other religions that are out there right now, then our prayers should look different from what other people are doing out there too. They should be meaningful. They should not be mechanical. They should be sincere. They should be simple. They should be full of forgiveness of other people. They should be real. And so my main point for today, as you see on the screen, is simple, but I think it gets it across, and that is don't pray like a pagan. If you can take anything away today, take away that. that don't pray like you're a pagan, because we believe something so much greater than they do. So the next few moments, I'm going to pray and give you a chance to respond to that. And maybe you're here today, and uh, you know you're like Matthew 5, and you know that you need to be reconciled with somebody. Ask God during this time to give you the strength to seek that reconciliation before you continue on in your prayer life. Or maybe you're here today, and you know you struggle with mechanical or meaningless prayers, and you need to get better about being sincere and simple. Ask God to help you with that. Ask God to help you make your prayers thoughtful. Or maybe here today and you heard and you, us talking about Jesus dying to pay your sin debt for you. And you know that you need to ask God to forgive you. Maybe you've asked him that before. Maybe you're here and you've never asked him to forgive you before. Ask God to forgive you today. 
I'm going to be up here if you want to place your faith in Christ like that, or you can go online, comment, or go to greensportbaptistchurch at gmail.com. These seats are open. The altar's open. I can pray for you if you want me to. But you respond as God has spoken in your heart.